I'm uh, the lead pastor of our church. So good. I've met a few uh, new faces already, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you just yet, I hope to. Um, I wonder if uh, there are things that you used to believe in that you're now quite embarrassed about. I'll give you an example. When I was young, like a lot of Asian kids, I was told that when you eat rice, you don't leave rice in your bowl. Any leftover rice in your bowl will be corresponding to the number of acne scars or pockmarks on your wife's face. Do you guys hear this? Who else has heard this lie and used to believe it? I used to. This is how parents scare you to eat all of your rice. And I can tell you firsthand it's not true because my wife Karen has a beautiful face. What are other things that you used to believe in that you no longer do and you'd be a little bit embarrassed to believe in now? or to admit that you believed in it. I looked up Reddit, which is a social media platform apparently, and people give their opinions on stuff. And this is what some other people had to say. So one person said, oh, that was me, okay. One person said, when I was young, my parents told me that if I kept leaving the fridge door open, then I would freeze the whole world and then no one would like me. (laughs) We parents are awful people, aren't we? How about this one? I thought that little people were so small because they were all born on February 29th. I figured that since their birthday only came around every four years, they would grow to be a quarter size. (laughs) Horrible lie. How about this one? I always heard people say it went down the wrong hole when they choked on something. Little me automatically assumed that humans had separate holes for food and drink. And when we swallow, it just automatically sorts out. I believed that until I was like 12 years old when I choked on a French fry in the car with my mum and I said that it must have gone down my drink hole. Mum was super confused and had to explain to me how swallowing food actually works. And then this one. My auntie told me God was everywhere, including inside me. So I stopped drinking apple juice to avoid getting him sticky. (laughs) What are difficult things that followers of Jesus, that biblical Christians believe? Beliefs that the world out there might think are kind of dumb. Beliefs that you might be tempted to be embarrassed about. Interestingly, uh, recently, two people have expressed Christian beliefs. One is Prime Minister Scott Morrison when he said after his election, I've always believed in miracles. And the other is rugby player Israel Folau, who essentially said, I believe that sinners go to hell. Now, both have expressed Christian beliefs. One was okay, the other wasn't. I'm not going to comment on, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting, isn't it? Both have expressed Beliefs that Christians have held for thousands of years, but one of the comments is totally okay. The other one was roundly condemned. What beliefs do you think are okay to hold now and what aren't? Well, in first century Corinth, which was a city in ancient Greece, believing in the resurrection of the dead was one of those hard-to-believe, unbelievable things. Now, It's not that they didn't believe in supernatural things or that they didn't believe in spiritual things. They're not like our world where, you know, a lot of people don't believe anything beyond what you can see and touch and and test. No, no, no. They believed in supernatural and spiritual things. But in their world, in in the Greco-Roman world of the first century AD, they just didn't believe that dead people came back to life in bodies. I mean, yes, may become spirits may become ghosts, some of them become even demonic, but not resurrected bodies, no, that's not what they believed in. Not only because, you know, you just generally don't see dead people come back to life, but also, why would anyone want to come back 
in their bodies. Uh, Plato, you might have heard of Plato, the, uh, the Greek philosopher, he taught that the physical stuff was less real, less good than the spiritual stuff. So if you want to be perfect, if you want to reach perfection, you, you don't come back physically. You want to get rid of the physical. Why in the world would you want to come back in your body? That's the Greco-Roman world. Uh, that's why the Corinthians would have found it really hard to believe that people came back to life. And somehow that world out there that everyone else believed or that they didn't believe in, that crept into this group of Christians known as the Corinthian church to whom this letter of 1 Corinthians was written. Um, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians. We're almost at the end. Uh, you might remember if you've been with us that the church in Corinth was, was a messy church. It was a really messy church. It had a lot of problems. And one of the problems was that they let too much of what was out there influence what was in here rather than letting what's in here overflow to change the world out there. That was part of the problem they had. And so some people in the church, Christians, followers of Jesus, had, began, had begun to doubt that people rose from the dead, that resurrection of the dead was coming for Jesus' followers. Now, again, I want to clarify. They didn't stop believing in the afterlife, right? They still believed in eternal life. They still believed in heaven. They still believed in spiritual stuff. They also didn't stop believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Right, we'll come to how that is kind of strange, but that wasn't what they stopped believing in. What they stopped believing in is that the final destination for God's people, for followers of Jesus, was also that like Jesus, we would come back to life. That we would be resurrected from the dead. That this body would be somehow raised again to live in this world. That's what they stopped believing in. And Paul, who is the guy who founded the church, he was a missionary, their pastor, an apostle, he writes to them in this chapter, the bits that we just read and the bits around it, and he wants to say to them, you stop believing in these things, the resurrection of the dead, and look what's at stake. Look what's at stake. Because if you stop believing that the dead are raised, everything is at stake. Your forgiveness of sins is at stake. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is at stake. Your hope is at stake. Even your eternity is at stake. Your salvation, your security, all of those things are at stake. But is this important for us? For us today, 21st century Christians, is it important for us? I haven't heard many of you deny the resurrection of the dead. So is it important to us? Well, I... I actually want to argue, yes, it's important. And I, and I want to say it's important for us today as well, because I'll tell you what, if I asked most of you to give me the, if for, for those who are followers of Jesus, the top five things that you think Christians must believe in, just the top five, I would wager that very few of you would put the resurrection of the dead in the top five. I'm not talking about Jesus' resurrection. That'll definitely make the top five, Okay. But our resurrection, how many of you would have put our resurrection in the top five? The very thing actually is in our Apostles' Creed. But very few of us would put it in the top five. That, you know, not, not that we don't believe we'll go to heaven when we die. I think everyone believes that. And a lot of you might put heaven in the top five. But actually that God's people would come back alive again to inhabit this earth. How many of you would put that in the top five? And I reckon very few of us would. And because we don't think it's that important, even though we pay lip service to it, I reckon this is why this passage needs to speak to us too. 
And I want to argue that because we only generally pay lip service to it, that actually, when you think about it, a lot of our Christian lives are skewed in the wrong direction. And you may not even know it, that it's related to this. So I'll give you some examples. If you don't think that caring for our environment is important, it's related to this. If your browsing and spending habits are just as greedy and consumeristic and materialistic as everyone else around you, then you're just paying lip service to the resurrection. If you have real problems with or opposed to why God would make sex and marriage one man, one woman for life, then there's something about the resurrection you don't understand. If you don't think that sharing the gospel is urgent and important, or if you think that the only thing that matters is evangelism and therefore your secular work and studies don't matter at all, all of those things are indications that we don't really believe how important this is, this very thing that Paul deals with. So, what's at stake? I'm going to show you three things in this passage. We're actually going to look at verses 1 to 34. We didn't read it all before. Let me pray, and uh, if you have an outline, we're going to go through them one by one. Let's pray. Father, help me uh, at this time in the afternoon to speak clearly. But most of all, we want to hear you speak. Your word, by your spirit, please speak to all of our hearts. And in some way, not just change our minds, but change our wills and change our actions in light of the resurrection. Amen. Okay, what's at stake? Number one, the gospel. Um, When I was growing up in youth group, my youth leader taught me a really important thing. It's simply this. If someone gets the gospel wrong, they are wrong. And this is so, so key here. Because in the first section, verses 1 to 8, we didn't read it earlier, but Paul, he'll start with the gospel. What's the gospel? The message The good news, the good news of Jesus. And this good news of Jesus actually saves people when they trust in it. Right? Every follower of Jesus became a Christian, is saved, has their sins forgiven because they've trusted in Jesus and the message about Him. Someone delivered it to you, you put your faith in it. This is how important this message is. This gospel is the one that He preached to these people in Corinth that made them Christians. And this gospel he wants to come back to because central to the gospel is that resurrection of the dead. Right? That key understanding that dead people come back to life again and specifically that Jesus came back to life again. So let's um, have a look at the verses we didn't read earlier. Follow with me. Have your apps open or if you um, need a paper Bible. By the way, every week, There's a bunch of Bibles at the back. You can just pick one up and um, use it while you're here if you prefer to use paper. But um, look at verse 1, and I'm going to read to verse 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's just a euphemism for died. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 
Right, Paul here answers two questions. Firstly, what is the gospel? What are the central things about this message? And then secondly, why is it important to get it right? So firstly, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, the good news, is the historically verifiable life of Jesus as passed on by reliable witnesses. You see that there, right? It's about witnesses. It's about the life of Jesus. And it's something that you can test historically. It's very important. So firstly, he says, the gospel is about Jesus who died for our sins. For there, right? Died for our sins means that he came to take the punishment for our sins. For those who are investigating Christianity, that's really key, isn't it? Right? If you're trying to find out what is that Christians ground their belief on, the death of Jesus wasn't just an accident, actually was in God's plan so that he would come and pay the penalty for the sins that we committed even though he never deserved to. He takes it in our place. That's what dying for our sins means. The next bit, he was buried. That is, he really died. They put him in a tomb. It's a real death, not a fake death. They all thought and knew that he was dead. And then most importantly, of course, he came back to life again three days later. And that was witnessed by hundreds of people, including Paul himself. But the whole point he's trying to make is that this gospel message is not something that is untestable. In fact, it is verifiable. It's historical eyewitness accounts. Paul was writing this 20 to 30 years after the events took place. Right? 1 Corinthians is probably one of the earliest letters we have in the New Testament. Almost all New Testament scholars and historians agree to that. 20 to 30 years after... And he's saying, look, if you have doubts that this happened, there are still people alive, hundreds, that you could talk to, eyewitnesses. Now, 30 years to some of us sounds like a really long time because, quite frankly, a lot of you aren't even 30 years old. But 30 years is not that long ago. Let me give you an example. 30 years ago, in fact, in a few days' time, on June the 4th, it'll be the 30th anniversary of, anyone know what that event is? Yeah, the Tiananmen Square Massacre. 30 years, June the 4th. Now, if you decided to say, that never happened, that's just some, <laughs> that's just some doctored photographs. <laughs> what an idiot. That's what I would say, because I, I would firstly say, do you work for the Chinese government? And do you have a Huawei phone? Um, no, I would say, you know what? Very simple. We could clear this up because there are so many witnesses still alive today. Right? I've met these witnesses because they're the, after Tiananmen Square, um, Australia actually opened its doors and allowed um, thousands, tens of thousands of um, uh, Chinese students to come and basically seek asylum. A lot of them made it to Australia. I met some of them. Right? They're still alive today. That's only 30 years ago. Paul was writing 1 Corinthians less than 30 years after the resurrection. See, I don't know if you know this, especially if you are still investigating Christianity. And by the way, every week we have people just trying to find out more. It's a great place to come and ask questions. But do you know that the good news of Christianity, the central parts of Christianity, actually rests on history? It is the only religion, really, that, that, that rests on history. That if you can disprove historically that Jesus rose from the dead, the whole thing would collapse. I'm, I'm not lying to you, all right? If you disprove that Jesus rose from the dead, 
And, you, and, and this is something that historically, you know, if they find the body of Jesus, if somehow you could prove that the historical accounts are false, then don't bother being a Christian. Don't bother trying to find out more about Christianity, because if that's not true, don't believe it. I wouldn't believe it. Now, that sounds really quite controversial, because a lot of people would say, look, religion is ultimately not about facts. It's about faith. And so, regardless of the facts, as long as you experience God, that's true for you, and that's fine. Well, that may be true of other religions, but it's certainly not true of biblical Christianity. It really does rest on whether or not, historically, Jesus rose from the dead. And if the answer is no, if it's not true, you see... What's at stake? What Paul says, why this matters? This is the second question. What's the gospel? Why it matters? Verse 2, he says, you believed in vain. Yeah, you've wasted your time. But more than that, verse 2, it also says, by this gospel, that is the historically verifiable gospel, you are saved. The implication is, you get it wrong, you aren't saved. Right? There's no eternal life. There's no forgiveness. There's, you're still facing hell, and that's what we're going to look at um, even more in the next point. But um, I want to say this. If you are unsure of the, the facts about the resurrection, whether you are a follower of Jesus or you're still investigating, we have this thing called Fresh. We ran it earlier in the year. We're going to do it again in August. Um, it's an informal over coffee weeknights over five weeks, and we investigate things like this. We get you to ask questions, you get to discuss it, you get to be presented with the evidence. So whether you're a follower of Jesus wanting to confirm that this is true, or especially if you're trying to find out more, I recommend that you get onto Fresh in August. Let us know that you're interested and we'll make sure that you come along, okay? So that's the first one. The gospel is at stake. Second point, uh, verse 12 onwards that Sarah read for us spells out what is at the heart of the Corinthians problem? Remember, it's not that they didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So that part of the gospel they're actually okay about. But they actually just didn't believe that Christians, Jesus' people will rise. Now that sounds to us like, how can you believe in one but not the other? Well, that's exactly Paul's point. Look at verse 12, right? It seems so obvious. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's pretty obvious, right? You can't deny one without denying the other. You have to say Jesus rose from the dead in body, but we don't. It's a bit like when one of my kids a few years ago decided to be half vegetarian. You can't be half vegetarian. You, know, you, you choose to eat any meat, you're no longer vegetarian. All right? And that's kind of Paul's point. You can't believe in one but not the other. Okay, look at verse 16. He goes on. 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. Now he's getting to what's at stake. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, died in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. So you see what's lost? Faith. The whole Christian faith is futile. That means hollow. It means empty. It's a little bit like getting a Huawei phone. I'm sorry if you have one. Because once a Huawei phone doesn't have Google in six months' time, it's pretty empty. Is this too soon? It's too soon. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, what else is lost? Faith, but forgiveness. 
Look what he says. You are still in your sins. Your sins aren't forgiven. Now, you might be thinking, why? He still dies. Jesus still dies. And as I said before, Jesus' death was to take the punishment for our sins. It's a substitution. So if he still died for sins, you know, why, why aren't our sins forgiven, even if he didn't rise from the dead? Well, the answer is, of course, if he stayed dead, what he did on the cross in dying for sins would have been ineffective, no use. Do you see, in the first century, by Jesus' day, and a little bit afterwards too, there have been and will be lots of people claiming to be saviors, messiahs, Jewish messiahs is the word. And all of them died, most of them, because they tried to start a rebellion and Rome quashes rebellion and they get killed, crucified, beheaded, all that kind of stuff. All of them died and stayed dead, except Jesus. And Jewish people knew that no matter who you claim to be, you could claim to be the Messiah, but if, you, if you're dead and you stay dead, then it's not, you're not the Messiah. Rome has won, not you. And a, a Savior who stays dead can't save anyone because you can't even save yourself. And so only a resurrected Messiah and Savior means that God wins and sin is defeated. Do you see what I mean? So without Jesus' resurrection, none of what he did on the cross would have been effective at all. And what else is lost? Well, the next one is hope, isn't it? If Jesus didn't rise and we don't rise, then this life really is it. Remember what he says? If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. Um, He says the same thing later on. Look at verse 30. We didn't read this earlier, but he says this. And as for us, that means he, uh, Paul, and his fellow apostles, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." You see, that idea that really religion's not about facts and truth, it's just about faith, and as long as you find comfort in it, it's all okay. Well, that's, again, a problem, isn't it? Because the Bible says if these things aren't true, just hanging on to that, whatever you call it, faith or fantasy, doesn't make you enviable, it makes you pitiable. Like, seriously, if this is all not true and you, if you are calling yourself a Christian and Jesus didn't rise, it makes you and me the most pitiable people because you've been living for a lie. And you could be spending your time doing other things, quite frankly. Right? That's what's at stake. All right, so that's the second thing at stake, faith, forgiveness, and hope. But most importantly, and up to my third point, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, God's entire plan of salvation is at stake. This is a big one. So look with me at verse 20. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. 
Uh, there's a lot packed into that, and I, I wish I could go through verse by verse and tease out all the details, but I won't have a time to. But I just want to sketch the big picture of what he's saying. The big picture he's saying is God's plan of salvation hinges on Jesus' resurrection. You see, God's plan of salvation is not, and this is important for us to hear because a lot of people think this is what Christianity is actually about. God's plan of salvation is not disembodied souls spending eternity floating around with harps in heaven. You got that? That's not God's plan of salvation. That because this world is so horribly mucked up, he's going to abandon this world and instead we're all going to be chuffed off to heaven, the perfect spiritual existence. That's not Christianity. That is not God's plan of salvation. What's God's plan? It's sketched out here, but let me summarize. God's plan is this. What sin wrecked through Adam, God would, would restore through Jesus. What sin wrecked through Adam, God would restore through Jesus. So let's think, what did God do through Adam? Right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, God's plan was that he would create a world that would be ruled, a beautiful world, a good world, and ruled perfectly through the man that he created, Adam, the first man. And it would be a loving rule, a good rule. It would be the kind of rule that God exercised. But Adam didn't want to do that. Instead, he pushed God out. Sin, right, is that rebellion of Adam, our great ancestor. He rejected God and sin wrecked all of that. Now, what's God's plan then? It's not to abandon this world that he created or abandon his blueprint, but he wants to restore it. And how is he going to do that? Well, Jesus, the second Adam. Jesus, the perfect Adam. God himself would become a man the perfect man, step into his broken world. He would deal with Adam's rebellion and sin by dying on the cross for it and paying the penalty for it. But most importantly here, he would rise again. Rise again, never to die again, as the man who God intended to rule his world. Do you see? He rises again forever to be the man to rule God's world as God intended it. And so God's plan is that Jesus would rule just as he intended Adam to rule, but Jesus would now do it perfectly. That's God's plan of salvation, not to escape this world, but to redeem it. But it's not just Jesus that it affects. You see, Jesus is called the first fruits. Now, what's that idea of being first fruits? First fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Well, in a few months' time, you're going to see uh, mangoes being auctioned. This happens every year. It's called the first season mangoes, right? So mango growers would take the first fruits, the first mangoes of the season, of the harvest, and they would auction it for charity, often for like hundreds or thousands of dollars for a tray of mangoes. But it's a good cause. But the point is, the better that the first season mangoes are, the better that you know the rest of the summer mangoes are going to be because it's the first fruits of the harvest. But the whole idea of first fruits is it's the first that guarantees the rest. Jesus is the first fruits. He is the first that guarantees the rest. What is the first of the first to be raised back to life? And he guarantees the rest. So who are the rest? Well, see, here's God's plan. God's plan isn't just that Jesus would be resurrected. His plan is that all of his people would be resurrected, but not just his people. 
His plan is also that his world that has been broken and fractured by sin would be resurrected. This world, this earth, this planet. God doesn't have a plan B planet. It is earth. And he would raise us up to live in a resurrected, renewed planet earth where there will be no more suffering, no more sin, no more pain. Jesus' resurrection is the first that guarantees our resurrection and the resurrection of this entire world. You see, Jesus' resurrection isn't just an afterthought for God. Right? It's not like God saw Jesus crucified on the cross. He goes, oh, that didn't go quite as I expected. Um, bah, I know what I'll do. They killed him, but I'll raise him to life again just to prove that they can't win. It's not how it happened. Jesus' resurrection, as I've described it, as the Bible describes it, is the climax of a plan that started, the Bible would say, even before God created Adam. Even before the Garden of Eden. God knew what was going to happen. He already set in motion a plan, even in the garden, even as Adam sinned. It's a little bit like, and you know I'm going here, aren't you? It's a little bit like the new Avengers films, right? These last two movies are the culmination of, what, 20 others, 22 films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Again, if you're not into this, I, I feel sorry for you. But it's 22 films. Those of us who watched it from the very first one, Iron Man, had no idea that they had all of this in mind all along for 10 years. And so when it comes together, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's no afterthought. It was all there. How much greater is God's plan? Right? There, I just drew a comparison between Marvel and God. Sorry. But how much greater is God's plan? Right, millions of years in the making, all climaxing, all about Jesus coming back to life. So, my final point. You might know the Apostles' Creed, that uh, statement of beliefs that Christians have been saying for thousands of years. One line is, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And so my question to you today is, do you really believe that? Especially if you're a follower of Jesus, do you really believe that? Because if you don't, as we've seen, everything is at stake. Now, as I said, our problem isn't that we don't say we believe it. We all say we do. We say the Apostles' Creed. But do we just pay lip service to it? Do we really believe it? Do we think it's that important? Because here's my suggestion. If we did really believe it, then at least three things we would also believe. And it's points A and B and C on your outlines under point four. If you really believed it, you would believe that you are part of a bigger story. Remember, God's plan of salvation is much bigger than just your sins being forgiven, your souls being saved, and you going to heaven. All right, it's much bigger than that. Doesn't mean that those things aren't true, but it means that His plan is much bigger. And so His plan is that you and I would put our life into His bigger story. The world doesn't revolve around us, it revolves around His story, and we get to be a part of that this plan that's bigger than the MCU, to restore all that sin has broken. It's pretty exciting when you see yourself as a part of a huge cosmic plan, doesn't it? Jesus didn't die just to save your souls. He rose again so that you can be part of his plan by living in submission to him. You would one day reign with him when you rise from the dead as rulers of God's new world. That's his plan. Now, 
in, in some ways, this is exactly what I talked about from a different angle at our recent, not the weekend away that, um, that um, Julie and Van talked about, but our more recent weekend away about heaven and hell and life eternal. So if you weren't there, they're free online. Have a listen. If you were there, you might want to re-listen because there's so much there that really links up to what I talked about here. But the whole idea is that we are part of a bigger story. Okay, how about the second thing we would really believe? We would be believe that this world actually matters to God. This world. Creation, matter, flesh, blood, physical life. Unlike Plato, your physicality isn't something to be escaped from. Unlike Hinduism or Buddhism, Nirvana is not found by going out of your bodies. This matters. Biblical Christianity is very much about your body. See, God doesn't reject his world. Jesus doesn't go without a body for eternity. He rises again in a new body, physical body. Jesus redeems it. And Jesus will resurrect your bodies if you belong to him. Now, there are all sorts of implications, right? Um, I mean, for example, your view of art and music and how important those are. Your view of ethics, right and wrong. Your view of the environment. It go, the list will go on. And that would be for another day to investigate. But um, I do want to suggest that there are... Already, for those who are followers of Jesus, probably you find that the Christian life has many kind of things that you have to both hold to be true, and sometimes they're in tension, and sometimes we don't believe the tension very well, and we tend to weight one over the other. And I want to say that actually understanding the resurrection and that this world matters to God is how you hold these tensions together. I'm not going to be able to spell it all out for you, but I just want to put it out there. But these are some examples, okay? For example, there's a tension, as we said, about the environment. And if we really believe the resurrection, we would care for our world environment. We would care about things like climate change. Even though we know, and here's the tension, that God will transform it and redeem it one day and renew it one day. Right? But you've got to hold both. Well, how about this one? Biblical Christianity values both marriage and singleness. And the church often only skews so much towards marriage, but we actually forget that there's so much about singleness. Jesus himself was single. So how can you value marriage as well as singleness? The resurrection helps us. How about this one? That actually sharing the gospel, evangelism, is an urgent priority. And yet, what you do Monday to Friday in your secular jobs, in your homes, in your studies still matter enormously. How do you hold that intention? How about this other one? Sex is a wonderful gift from God, and human sexuality is meant to be enjoyable. It is meant to be enjoyable, but there are to be strict boundaries around it in terms of God's vision for sex within marriage, one man, one woman for life. How do you hold those intentions? Our world today says you can't have A and still have B. And if you have B, you can't have A. It's not the Christian view. How is it, another one, that the good world we live in is supposed to be enjoyed but not idolized? How is it that money is a good gift from God but the love of money is a root of all evil? You see? Tensions everywhere. But if you really understood the resurrection, you'd be able to hold them together. Now, I wish I had time to tease out all of them for you. Chat with each other. Chat with us a little bit more about it. But I want to suggest to you 
that part of understanding how it works in tension is understanding the importance of the resurrection. Last of all, we would really believe, if we really believe this, then we would live the future in the present. That we as followers of Jesus play a part now in light of the future. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but a number of times, at least three times, the, 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 the biographies, of Jesus, biographies of Jesus tell us, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. Yeah? He'd often say something like, the Son of Man would be rejected, suffered, crucified, and after three days rise again. And every time he says that, his disciples would flip out. Now, have you ever thought about what did they flip out about and what didn't they flip out about? Because every single time they flipped out about the fact that he says he's going to die and suffer. And, and reasonable, right? Because again, he can't claim to be the Messiah and in their mind have to die. That just wasn't their view of what Messiahs do. Fair enough. But have you noticed that they never once asked Jesus, what do you mean you're going to rise from the dead? Like that never happened, right? You would think that they would ask about that. I mean, someone says to you, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to rise. I think most of us would say, what did you say about rising? Because dead people don't come back to life. So they actually had no issue with that, and yet they were genuinely surprised when he did rise from the dead. So why didn't they ask about that? Why didn't they ever flip out about that? Well, here's the reason. Um, Jews of Jesus' day, they all believed in the resurrection of the dead. But here's the thing. They believed that it would happen at the end of history. And so they thought when Jesus said, after three days I will rise, that the three days, and this his, in the Old Testament, three days sometimes is a metaphor for a period of time. And they thought Jesus meant three days. Okay, he's talking about the end of time. Jesus would rise again. Okay, we all believe that because everyone's going to rise again at the end of time. That's what they thought he meant. So they didn't have an issue when he talked about that. And so when he did rise from the dead, they were genuinely surprised. They weren't expecting it. Because they thought resurrection only happens at the end. But here it is. Jesus walks out of the tomb on Easter Sunday morning in the middle of history, not at the end of history. And that for them changed everything. They had to now rethink the relationship between the future and the present. Because if Jesus walks out of the tomb on Easter Sunday in the middle of history with his resurrection body, as the first fruits, then the future has actually invaded the present, hasn't it? What God said would only happen at the end has now started now. The new creation has invaded the old. And that had huge implications, not just for Jesus' followers as they thought about Jesus, but for how they thought about themselves, how we think about ourselves. 2 Corinthians says this, look on the screen. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Right? So Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. The first fruits are already here. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you are joined to Jesus by his spirit. And therefore, you and I are walking pockets of the new creation everywhere we go. It's a little bit like what I talked about the weekend away. Heaven invading earth, we are walking pockets of heaven. The church is the new creation community planted sort of like embassies in a foreign land. But we're God's embassies in a foreign land. Now that has got to have massive implications, doesn't it, for everything we do now. Not the least because we now can live the future in the present. Now everything we do is an opportunity to 
to be a foretaste of the new creation. Do you know that? I don't know if you um, ever um, have, get a free sample of something, usually food, but it could be a product, and it's so good that you think, I must buy it. Now, usually, I go get free samples, and often, you know, food courts, I'll do it on, like, Sundays, right? Go to a food court on a Sunday, just take every free sample you can, and you generally don't buy anything. You just like to have a free feed. But every so often, something would be so tasty that you're like, I must have some of that, and you actually go and buy it, all right? You and I, as followers of Jesus, have an opportunity to give out free samples of the new creation. Do you know that? In your relationships, in your actions, in your words, in your deeds, in your attitudes, you can give out free samples to the world out there of that invasion of the new creation into the old. Just think about all the opportunities you now have to be a foretaste of the new creation. It could be the next conversation that you will have with someone you study with or work with. That can be a free sample opportunity. Or or the next prayer that you pray for someone in need Maybe even today, after service, as you pray for them, you can be a conduit of the new creation. The next dollar you give for the poor, the way you treat your colleagues, your fellow students, your boss, your subordinates, the way you practically care for our environment, the way you go against the grain, Not to give in to sex outside of marriage. Not to give in to the consumerism and greed of our culture. Not to give in to despair and cynicism and anger. They can all be opportunities for the new creation. The way you honor your parents and keep loving them even when it's hard. The way you decide against taking revenge and getting even at someone who's even really, really hurt you. The way you rest and have recreation and enjoy God's good creation. The way you travel. The next nappy you change. And some of you are like, really? Yes. Parents. The next nappy you change. Or if your kid's a bit older like mine, the next car trip you take as your kid's chauffeur again. The next date night you prioritize with your spouse. The next meal you cook for your elderly parents. All of them, the list could go on and on and on. Every single thing you do, if you're a follower of Jesus, is an opportunity for the new creation to invade this broken old one. It's all because Jesus has risen and we will rise. So you see what's at stake? We say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I wonder today if you really do. Band's going to come up. We're going to sing about that. But let's pray as we get ready to sing.